0: Welcome to our event, See There Telling. Um, we will hear from four amazing panelists and me, Ravanit Leia Sorna of the Fuchsia Institute. I am your host for tonight, and also the resident Manishtana. Um, and in, in traditional, in, in, in the tradition of the, the Haggadah, um, in the traditional Haggadah, we, we read the following story Masa, Revi Elias, Revi Revi Lazar, Mazari, Revi Q, in heaven, the Rabbi 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 Akiva, and Rabbi Tarfu and Shayyim they were reclining. to their Passover Seder in Benei La and they were telling the story of the Exodus from Egypt that entire night. until their students came and said to them, yachma Their students came and said to them, the time. To recite the morning Shema has arrived. We will not be going our night, but in a way, we will today be reproducing the sea there with scholars of our own in our own times, telling the story of the Exodus unscripted and in their own words. Our there tellers include Rabbi David Ingber, who is the founder and senior rabbi at Romanu, a community that he founded, and he is a disciple of Rabbi Zalman Shachter Shalomi. Dr. Mir Muddell, an associate professor of German studies and Jewish studies at Emory where she focuses on Yiddish language literature and culture. She just put out a book, Honey on the Page, A Treasury of Yiddish Children's Literature um, with New York University Press. Dr. Tammy Jacobowitz is the chair of the Bible department at SAR High School and is the founding director of Makun Vitsiach, an immersive adult education program for parents. And Rabbi David Silver is, of course, founder and dean of the Grisha Institute for Jewish Education in New York and Israel. Uh, we are so grateful to have all of them here tonight. Uh, Rabbi Ingver is recovering um, from an or is undergoing an injury, um, and so he will just not be on screen, but he is here. Um, he is here with us and you will hear his voice. Um, so welcome to all of our panelists welcome to everyone who's here joining us tonight we're so grateful to have you and just to begin um the first question i suppose is where to begin so i guess with that we'll turn it over to dr Jacobowitz. where should we start tonight
1: oh wow um the nachshon of the night here we go um first of all i want to say what an incredible honor it is to study with with three teachers of mine um and i'm just so excited to have this chance to riff off ideas with no need for tricks or treats or any kind of prizes we're all just We're all here for the same reason to learn from each other so thank you, Reben Leia. Where do we start the story? um I think it depends really what our purpose is in storytelling you know we We always have a purpose, whether we know it or not and there could be many stories that we tell, there could be many purposes. So I'm not going to choose, I'll just throw out a couple of possibilities. Um, Rabbi Silber told me a long time ago that the story really begins in Brashid, so I'm going to leave that one for him, uh, to really start with Avraham, and that's like the, you know, the biggest um, sograim that you could, you could begin and end very far, we'll leave that for the end. But I'd like to begin in the beginning of Shmoot, I like to begin with Pastig Zion. I have a lot to say about Pastig Zion in the first parak and all the birthing. That's where I think a lot of the magic of the night is. But if we're asking ourselves where did the slavery begin and how did it begin, I think you have to look at least to the end of Rishi. I think you have to look in the story of Yosef. And not necessarily at the story of Yosef coming down and bringing his family down, but at the moment when he goes to Paro and he asks. For his family to have a place to stay, it's really tricky when you go back and look closely in the in the psukim. I encourage everybody to read them in chapter um, in, in Mem Zion. When he goes to Paro and he says, "Here's my family," he doesn't tell the whole story. He brings some of the brothers with him, and he kind of sets up a situation where they don't look so scary, but they have needs. They need land for their for their animals. And he says, they're just here, right? Lagur, Baaret. But by the end of that conversation, Paro has agreed for them to have a moshav, a place to really settle in. And furthermore, at the end of that section, it's incredible. He figures out a way to get them an ahuza, right? And even a more of a, of a, of a hold in the land and food enough for, for all their families and all their children. The very next section, we find out that the Egyptians, the resident Egyptians, end up with really very little, and they end up selling almost everything they have, including their bodies, and have no food. I think that's where the story begins, where we are no longer just visitors. We've set up shop, but we've set up shop in a way that, that may be created, actually did create a, a lack of, of equity in the land, which can go unnoticed,
2: and then it crops back up, and the story picks up.
0: Rashami Udell over you?
2: so similarly i am fascinated um, with the with all of that birth that begins with all of that generativity and fertility that we see represented at the beginning of Shmoot. but we do have to go back to brashit and try to understand what it means for a family to become a nation a nation Within another nation, such that it can then be a nation taken out of a nation, which the rabbis are going to be very concerned about later in the story. Um, so I think that the the genealogy that that um, Dr. Jacobowitz Tammy just offered um, is a is a really good one to understand that there there was exploitation, perhaps. Um, I mean, it's a really ugly word, and it's an ugly concept. But um, there, something was going wrong there already. Um, and I'll, I know that Rabbi Silver has a lot of Torah, some of which I was privileged to hear a long time ago. So I'm going to stop here and defer on this one.
0: Rabbi Ingber and Rabbi Silver both requested to go last, but Rabbi Silver is my boss, so I'm gonna That's go to Rabbi Ingber.
3: Let <laughs> me go to Rabbi next and give Rabbi Sil- Soft request. That was not that, that a real request. I, okay. I,
4: so I'm happy to go now. No problem. I thank you. First of all, it's a smart thing uh, to to be mechabe Rabbi Silver on every level for every role. And uh, I just want to say to everyone, I can't see you all, but I was very struck by the the first piece that came up of, of the. That they were Masubin vipinay Brak. And we often speak about heseba and leaning. And I'm certainly in that posture right now as I have a herniated disc in my cervical spine. But uh thank goodness I'm feeling so much better than I was today earlier. And so I'm happy to be here. And to hear already from Dr. kobwitz and, and from from you, like some beautiful Torah just to think about where things begin. I think the question itself is a fascinating question. Like where does a story ever begin, especially when we speak of a, a Torah? That they were told over and over again, has no beginning and no end. And even the bet of Reshit and the lamed of the last word of the Torah itself are conjoined as Chazal tell us, as our rabbis teach us into one heart. And so where does the story end is usually more of an existential question and how, what kind of ending it has. And that's kind of some of the pain that we all experience in life is not knowing how the lamed of the Torah and the bet of Reshit can connect. And so in that, in that interstice between you know that in which we search for meaning i think it's a wonderful question so i would i would say i'll give my hand here and say that in my particular approach to to torah which is very informed by the, the mystical tradition of torah from the zohar and from the hasidic masters when we ask a question about the very particularistic story of of the exodus of shmos of the etz Mitzrayim, we're also asking fundamentally about a much broader universal question which is where does, um, where does the narrowness that is depicted by Egypt, where does the kind of conditions that Egypt depicts that befell a unique people called Israel, but also are rooted in a, in a kind of, in, in humanity itself, where does that begin? I would source the beginning of a story, frankly, in, in mystically, I might say it begins with the first letter of the Torah, where, where there is division, there is potential brotherhood, sisterhood, family connection, and there is also potential disconnection, alienation. But then I would say much more succinctly that I think in the story of Kain and Hazel, and the question that hangs over the entire book of Breshit, which is, <clears throat> you know, the question that is unanswered, by Because the God doesn't answer the question Hashomer, achi, that Kain asks, that that question acts as a as a kind of overarching theme of the entire book of, of, of Breshit. And when we enter into the story of of both the Redeemer, Moshe Rabbeinu, and of Cal Yisrael and Am Yisrael, we enter into a place where Moshe Rabbeinu says, it says about Moshe, and that Moshe saw their suffering. And he identified with a particular people. But of course, that's also very complicated because Moshe Rabbeinu, as much as he is the Redeemer, is also saved from the slavery by Bath Paro and grows up in the house of Pharaoh. To further complicate this very particularistic story of how we leave Egypt is also we leave Egypt through the agency of someone who is a son of Pharaoh, but is a brother to the Jewish people, a daughter of Bath Paro, adopted. And so I feel like the universal question that we ask every year is both. The particular question, of course, is the Jewish story but it's also writ large, how is it that human beings can see one another as not brothers and sisters, as it were, as not worthy of being invited to sit at the table in the halakh right, called it's not just, it's, it's a fundamental question of, of what it means to imagine the other as, as an object or as someone who can be enslaved in that way. So that's, I think, where I would, absolutely. I can't wait to hear What would Silver said. say?
3: Okay, thank you uh, again. It's really uh, a joy to participate uh, this evening. And um, you know, where the story begins, I think, is lends itself to many different possibilities. Some of which have been stated already in terms of the Jewish story, the story of, of slavery when that begins, etc. Uh, I think someone mentioned that I typically speak about going back to Breshit and going back to Avraham. Uh, Rabbi Ingo went back to creation, but I would say that in thinking about the story, I think the hagadah that we ha- we have has been handed to us. And if I were doing my own haggadah, you know, Yeshmeyain, you know, ex nihilo, I think I would focus on Abraham because. There's a there's a promise and there's a there's a there's a covenantal promise in chapter 15 of Breishit that it's a promise of a land it's, it's an aspiration it's a promise of a nation but it comes with a price it comes with a price of suffering of being a stranger and being oppressed and being enslaved and uh, it's a very heavy price uh, and actually those that suffer the generations that suffer don't actually as the covenant is formulated don't actually see the benefits. There's someone who's setting up a possibility for somebody else. And seeing the Exodus story in the book of Exodus as one of the fulfillments of this covenantal promise, I think what it does for us, I'll speak for myself, it takes it out of a kind of historical context and it says it's really not about a particular moment in history, it's more about uh, an aspiration, it's about Seeing, yes, seeing the divide within history, but seeing ourselves as participants in a, in a story which spans generations. So we may focus on a particular uh, example of the covenant, namely the exodus, the suffering in Egypt, slavery of Egypt, and the eventual leaving Egypt and moving towards a, a promised land, towards a better society. Uh, we have to remember that everybody who leaves Egypt dies in the desert. They're not actually fulfilling the covenant in the sense that they are going to possess a land, but they're making it possible for somebody else. So I think one of the important points for me is that uh, seeing seeing uh, myself, my community, my generation as part of something bigger, and thinking of history as something that actually makes sense. You know, I would just uh, at this point just say simply that Pesach comes one month after Purim, which to me is all about lack of of Seder. You know, the Seder, the ritual Seder, which means order, actually bespeaks, I think, Seder. There's a statement at the Seder that we, at least as we say it, as we live it, we are saying in effect that there an order to this world, even though we often don't see it there's a beginning, there's an end, there's a promise, there's a hope for a happy ending, there's the largest cup on the table, et cetera. Um, so the Seder is all about, I think, a core Jewish ritual, a belief that life has some kind of meaning and some kind of purpose. It comes after Purim, which is all about, I think, the lack of Seder. It's about things happen a certain way, it could equally be otherwise. It's, uh, it, it's, it's about lots, it's about randomness to some extent. So, I think going back to the covenantal promise is a way of saying that this event makes sense. And even if we're not redeemed, even if we are still in slavery, it can still have meaning for the one who is suffering. I mean, Jews historically have had plenty of suffering in our our history. We haven't always been free people. The whole is, is is in Aramaic, it's not even in Hebrew. So there's a recognition that we're part of a process but we, we may be in different places in that process as a community and as individuals.
0: All right, um, I wanna move on to my next question which is that we know that there's so many different forms that slavery and oppression can take. Um, what, did it, what did it look like in Egypt? Uh, describe, describe for us the form that the slavery and oppression took for us in Egypt. Um, and for this one, we'll start with Arshini Iza
2: the ritual of unmuting. So thank you and I, I also want to take the opportunity to thank Rabbi Leah just for the way that this event was conceived. I feel like I'm already personally reaping and tasting the fruits of the approach that that you came up with to this and um it's needless to say an honor to be part of it but even you know just to to hear from my colleagues and teachers um so there are two forms of oppression that I want to highlight tonight that I've been thinking about this year. The first is the the confusion that ensues, the lack of moral clarity that comes with what I might sort of colloquially call the mind bleep of slavery, if you will. Um, In in Sota, where there's this long exegesis about the Exodus, um, the rabbis talk about how the verses, vayasimu alav sare misim, that they imposed upon him. Oh, what, what does it mean they imposed it upon him, overseers? Um, and the, the Midrash says that actually, um, the Egyptians placed a brick mold around Paro's neck that Paro made this show of going out and doing the very same work that was being asked of B'nai Israel. And so if somebody objected to the revised terms of the labor agreement, and they said, well, you know, this is exploitative, we don't want to do this, then they would say to him, are you more of an istinist than Paro? Like you think that you have a more delicate, you know, uh, constitution and that you're unfit for this work? Look at our, look at our dear leader, um, and, you know, thinking about leadership and the many forms that it has taken within our lifetimes, but also within our our recent political lives. Um, the the kind of creeping. Confusion that that can come in with um, a form of governance that um, that pulls the wool over people's eyes. And I, I'm also extending this point. I'm very taken with the reading of avodah of bit of hard servitude, heavy servitude, as befarach um, with a soft mouth with blandishments. With suasion, so that people are recruited into this system by being made to doubt their own perceptions of reality, um, and I think that the the starkness of the theater and the kind of strong interpretive hand with which the narrative gets shaped really is a way of of pushing back and kind of resisting that haziness, right? Because it, it, we ask, you know, by degree, things change. And we ask, is it really so bad? Like, okay, we, we made that brick quota yesterday, they want us to do a few more bricks today, like, what's the big deal? And part of what the Seder is doing is it's reimposing a a very clear shape to the story and to our perceptions of the story, even though it threatens to allied, Certain details, so so that's one. Just the sort of manipulative quality of and the way that that slavery confuses all of the participants. Um, and then the other that I want to highlight is the loss of control for Bene Israel over their own time. And I think that the way where we don't get so much directly about this in the narrative of the Exodus of the time in Egypt. Itself or the immediate Exodus, but the idea that that first mitzvah is Rosh Chodesh, that it's Hachodesh Hazayiya Lachem, that it's reinstituting or perhaps for the first time granting control to the Jewish people over time. And that comes with an objective correlative, something outside of themselves that they can look to for evidence, which is the moon. And it also comes with this subjective piece that has to do with the witnessing of the moon because the moon alone doesn't do it. You need the the testimony about the moon. Um, So yeah, I think that just coming into control of the time Having reached that sort of point of maturity is a what we learn what slavery is by learning how it's undone afterwards. That's
0: very beautiful. Uh, thank you. Does anyone, does anyone want to hop in, or I can keep calling on people by force?
1: I'll hop in. I'll hop in. Um, I wanted to just pick up on something that Rabbi Silber said and Rabbi Ingber said. You know, when you were both talking about where, where the story began, I felt as if, you know, certainly Rabbi Ingber, like if it begins with the first letter, right, then the whole Torah is the story, which which feels right in some ways and overwhelming in other ways. Um, and when Rabbi Silber, when you were talking about um, the covenantal narrative and the people who were promised it were not the people who were suffering. And I was thinking about how the story, when we say the story, do we mean the people living it or the people telling it? And there's a great elision, even in the narrative, you know, the living is embedded, is interconnected with the telling. Maybe we'll get to that later in the beginning of the story. But I guess even when, when Miriam was just saying right now, the kinds of political experiences that we've had, that helps us understand the slavery. I'm both thrilled by that and nervous about that. I just want to call attention to it. We were asked to to do that kind of thing, right? yatsanu, Like that's we're reading and understanding our own story through this lens, but is there a limit? Just want to put that out there. Um, But on that note, um, I guess what I wanted to say, the question was, what sort of slavery is it? How would you describe it? How would you characterize it? Um, I find the slavery to be terrifying for two opposing reasons. You know, On the one hand, it's a story. I mean, it's a death narrative from the beginning. Um, Chapter one is all about power and bringing death at every At every moment and the the life narrative that that God and the women are, you know, are intersecting and and constantly resisting the death. And it's a showdown in that early chapter. And it feels so categorical. You know, there's Ambena Yisrael that are seen and known by the other and they can be identified by the other and they are too much and they need to be squelched. And there's this, I would say, temptation, uh, which is terrifying to imagine that all the egyptians certainly had to have participated and had to have allowed to go for us to go in such a short span of time seemingly from quote unquote normalcy to terrifying death inducing slavery and that's terrifying in its own right to imagine living in a society like that but i guess what's terrifying for me this year in a different way is when i upplay all of the voices of resistance in the egyptian story, right, which are already been named Bob Parot, of course, and the midwives, were are most likely Egyptian. and and realizing that it never was that simple. It never was all one um versus another um. Those categories hardly ever exist. And then the terror there is to say, well, is that is that us too? Right? Do we live in times where we are lumped together, perhaps by not raising our voices or by acting with a particular um, and we help to support and perpetuate and sustain all kinds of death narratives without even knowing.
3: I would just um, jump in. Um, I would say that um, in terms of what the day looked like or what that experience was of or, or is of slavery. Um, so I, I think it's interesting that there we talk about the exodus from Egypt, but the truth of the matter is there are several Exodus stories in the, uh, in the Bible. I've, 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 I've located at least six of them. And the first one is actually right there in, with, with Abraham when he goes down to Egypt. There's a famine, he goes down with his wife, and he says to his wife, say you're my sister. And we know that Sarah is taken by Paro. We don't know for how long but she's taken and without God's intervention, God brings plagues upon that power in the 12th chapter of Greshit. And if God would not intervene, who knows? She might still be there. So it's, and the focus of that story is interesting. It's not about the hard labor. It's more about uh, using other people for your own purposes. In particular, the a story about Sarah. She's the, she's the victim, the primary victim. Avram on the contrary, benefits from it in some sense. But as is the one to one that goes, the inuit and the abdut and the um, And It's interesting that if you think about the Exodus story as one text, which, 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 which is to be read uh, in terms of all the other texts, then I think we get a more complete picture of what it might have been. Because the text in Exodus talks about the heroic women, but doesn't say much about what's happening to the. To the family life in Egypt, what's happening to the women in Egypt, what's happening to the men in Egypt, the are Rashim, but it's not so much in the text that when you read that in conjunction with the other stories, especially the first descent to Egypt, you get a much more complete picture of what it means to be a slave. It's not just you work hard, you become a uh, a, a non person, essentially. Um, the other one point that I would just, one last point that I would make now about the work in Egypt is that Paro has the Israelites building store cities or whatever. What what becomes very clear in the fifth chapter is that actually he doesn't care about the cities because when Moshe says, let let the people go, let them serve God or whatever, he takes away the straw and he insists on the same quota, which is not possible. So actually he gets less work out of them. So it turns out that it's not about building the cities. The building cities is his Pretext for making them work very hard. It's actually work which has no purpose, and I think I think we can all identify that either in our own lives to some extent, or we see it around us. Many people spending a lot of hours on work, and it appears to us, and I think to them, very often they say, "I don't know what I'm doing. I'm spending a lot of time, most of my waking hours, and I don't feel there's any purpose to it." So I think that is a kind of slavery. I think in, in in contemporary terms, it's a way of seeing that experience. Now, you know, someone who doesn't find full meaning in their work, is not the same one in Nepal who is crushing stones to get enough gravel to buy supper. I'm not comparing that, but I am saying that I think that the definition of work in the land of, 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 of Egypt, the paro, in contrast to say how the book ends, which is which is purposeful labor, I think one of the things we aspire for in our work, wherever we find ourselves, is whatever we're doing, we're looking for some kind of purpose, some kind of meaning, some kind of service. So I think that Powell tried to try to make that impossible. So to me, that's the, that's one of the elements of, of the de- definition of slavery that we read about in the beginning of Exodus. I guess, um, I guess uh,
4: did you want to I go think. on, Leah? what did you, Robert?
3: And there's so much to
0: respond to here. I'd love
4: to hear. I, I'd love to hear wherever you want to take us next. No, I'm going to say, you know, I'm sorry to interrupt, but and I'm not really sure if people want to hear my voice because um, as one of the 40 million slaves that exist right now in the world, according to you know what I was reading online, there are 40 million of us and you don't have to go very far. And you don't have to read any books to see what it's like to be a slave. And I, and I kind of listening to this conversation and I like some of the psychological and the spiritual things and the way that we think about suffering, but there's real suffering in being a slave. There's real danger. There's real fear. I I come home and I'm afraid that maybe I won't see my wife and my three boys again, because maybe somebody, you know, Decided that they wanted to to take him, and I have nowhere to go. I feel completely exposed all the time. I feel completely unseen. I feel completely unprotected. And I, you know, I heard somebody using exploitation. That's what it feels like to be
1: a human being who, who isn't treated like a human being, and 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 it's still going on.
4: And I can only imagine what my ancestors must have experienced at a time when I'm just being building other people's you know infrastructure and building their society and being such a foundation for everything that is making Egypt great and doing it at a cost of our dignity, our humanity, our culture and I know that we kept our Hebrew names, that's true. Now, you know, back then and try to keep them now. Try to hold on to the things that are important. But it's hard. It's hard when when you're one paycheck away from from one injury destroying everything. You can't get insurance and you don't know if getting sick is gonna mean that you know that that you're absolutely financially ruined. I mean, these are real things, people. There are real things. And it, and a lot of this beautiful stuff about inner, inner psychology and inner spirituality is really hard to hear because this story is my story. And it's a story of millions and millions of people, including one in four children who are one in four slaves are children. That means 10 million children are slaves right now. So. If I come out of character for a moment just say that, I think that this is at the heart of, 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 of a dilemma that doesn't go away. That in the rabbinic tradition of saying, the we're reading ourselves into the story, but it's not just us. And let's say, you know, we're living nicely in a privileged life in America, right? And <laughs> does that mean that the story is no longer relevant because let's say Jews are no longer in a particular Mitzrayim? This story was a story for all of us, and I think it's salient power is to lift up the continued expression of slavery and all of its attendant and and other peripheral issues like modern day slavery that Rabbi Silver was, was speaking to. That's also there. And we don't have to choose one or the other. That's the point of the whole. there like tell the story, tell the story of those in the sub-Saharan. Tell the story of the people who are struggling with mental illness tell the story of all of the mithraims that exist and bring them all to the table and discuss them and don't rate them don't say one is better or worse than the other but bring them all into the telling the pesach the mouth that speaks and say it say it true that's what I you know that's all I wanted to have
0: Rami Ingber, or in your uh, bibliodramatic um, character, either one can respond to that. The following question, but I want to dig. I want to dig deeper into that, into the full experience of um, of of the slavery, and I, I'm curious, kind of in more concrete terms, like what was the day-to-day, or is the day-to-day like?
4: Well, the day-to-day like is that you you barely can you barely you you barely get enough sleep, but you but you sleep deep because you're completely exhausted, backbreaking labor all day. My body's killing me. I have pains that I can't even describe I come back. I lay my head down. I'm up and I'm up immediately. Like within a couple of hours, the sun starts to to rise quickly and beat on me and You know, I don't know half of the people that I'm that I'm actually working with every day because they keep moving everybody around. So there's no sense of community, right? I don't know where my friends are, know where they've gone. I don't know what's become of them. I don't know if if they're okay. Even family members, I'm not really sure where they are. And every day feels like it will, it will never end. It's, it's all day, all day. And, and I don't think that I'm ever going to be free. I mean, like every day, it's just not only the heaviness of the work, but the heaviness of 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 feeling defeated, a sense that this thing will never ever end. Will we ever ever know anything other than this? And when people ask me every day, like you know, when we sit around, what are we talking about? We're talking about you know, it's this it. This is this is what we. This is this is our lives. Every generation is going to be like this. We'll just be slaves and building for others, and not have any sense of dignity, a sense of our own capacities as human beings. It's going to be like this every single day. And I've even to this point, like you know, I, I have no desire for my wife. I come home and I have no energy. Although she and a lot of the other women are trying to get the men to get a little bit, you know energized about but why would anybody want to bring a child into the world like why would i want to bring a child into the world under conditions like this what kind of sentence would that be for that child to be born into such into such absolute hopelessness and despair it's just it's just you know i want somebody to tell us that it's going to be okay send us the code tell us that there's going to be some to hold on to because we're we're, we're we feel helpless and helpless.
0: You spoke about the Gemara and Sosa before. Do you want to take us into maybe what that would have been like from a female perspective? You're, um...
2: You know, the first thing all of the Yiddish students are learning this year is, you're muted, because um, mm-hmm. we say it again and again and again. So, um, so I do want to say something about this, but um I, I, I know that I know just from the world and from our friendship that this is an important midrash to Tammy. And I think you have something to say that might even precede what I because I want to go, I want to drag us into the 20th century with this midrash, but let's let it live in its rabbinic context first a little bit. Um. okay, so I mean,
1: David, you that was that was very hard. That was very hard, and I, and I, I, I want to show, I want to show about, you know, those women. I want to upplay a little bit the buried story that's 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 nowhere on the surface of the text, but is everywhere in every pasuk where we spoke about the life narrative. Like you said, who would want to bring kids into this world, and yet they did again and again and again. And this story, I think many people know it, but not everybody does. So it's worth saying out loud. I definitely learned it the first time from my teacher, Aviva Zornberg, and then read it in her books and have now taught it many times because it is so powerful and, and actually it messes with our categories when we talk about feminism. So, so here's the story. The story goes, like David just laid out, there was no desire, there was no dignity, there was no real awareness of the other, there was no family. And when the Midrash asks, when the Midrash describes that the families were separated, the Midrash asks, what did the women do? Because of course they had a plan. That was unacceptable. We can't live like that. We can't give in to that terrible reality that David just described, where all you talk about is what is right in front of you. And there is no vision past the hour that you're in. Let me Josh tells a story that the women in this plan to rescue themselves and their husbands from the dismal narrowness of this hour, they went fishing. And when they went to the water, God worked in partnership with them and summoned the fishes. And they took them from the water and they sold some for spices and cooked the rest. And they prepared these elaborate feasts and brought their husbands out into the field, really back into the field at nightfall reconnected with them fed them and then after their bellies were were full imagine that as a slave they turned towards their husbands with these mirrors and in a very unusual move said to their husbands i am more beautiful than you and their husbands responded and said no i am more beautiful than you and only through that kind of you know around the bend compliment opening up of an awareness of the self they looked towards each other and then they became desirous and children were born. And I think that story is is so powerful and so hard to really imagine, you know, time and time again, if the Midrash is to be not taken literally, but given us this idea of how were these children somehow brought. It's not just the act, it's the hope. It's the ability to really push beyond what they saw in front of them, which seems Herculean, and, and nearly impossible to imagine in the verses, but there it is, there it is. And what I was referring to earlier about it messing with our feminist categories. I mean, these are women who were, who were shopping and cooking and feeding, not what we would think of as the Tzit Kaniyot, right? Of our time, how we would fashion ourselves. But in these kinds of moments, mundane activities with a certain headset are heroic. So that's also a part of the daily life of a slave. And if I wanted to be really imaginative, I could say, well, as they were working, the women were concocting what they would do later.
2: Yeah. So I want to now pick up on the next part of that same Midrash, right? Because it's all filling out this thesis that Rabbi, Avera posits that it's in the merit of the nashim tzidkaniot of these righteous women that the entire people were redeemed, and so the the babies were born. But then, what do you do with them? They're not. They didn't go through all of this just to throw the babies into the river and comply with the decree. So they took them to this remote apple field and they kind of entrusted their babies. And the citation for this midrash, it's all on Sota 11a and 11b. This part is on 11b, I think. Um, but they entrusted their babies to the care of the apple trees and to the angels. And the angels came down and they furnished each baby with a stone with oil and a stone with honey. So they were able to suckle from these stones. And there, and the whole thing is a a fantasy of being able to raise children unmarked by the violence and the cruelty of their surroundings, because what this is ultimately going to yield is a, a preserve a, a generation that's been of men that's been kind of um like. Kept away in a pickle jar, away from all of the terrible things that are going on in Egypt writ large and it's such a beautiful image, and it has a lot of immediacy it has a lot of immediacy on the page of of the Talmud and sota, but for me, it has even more immediacy when this Story is picked up by a Yiddish writer in the '50s, post Holocaust, and he his name is Levine Kipnis, and he is a Zionist, and he's living in Eretz Israel, and he writes hundreds and hundreds of stories for children and poems for children in Hebrew, and he decides to publish one book in Yiddish for the children of the diaspora to try to kind of sell them on his vision of Eretz Israel and so it's a it's a holiday book because after the holocaust everybody wanted to tell holiday stories and make sure that even the you know secular socialist kids of of leftist yiddish speakers were conversant with all of the themes and the motifs of the various holidays and so this is the story that he picks up and dusts off and decides to tell in Yiddish. And he really centers the experience of these mothers. And he he writes, and I'm going to just quote from my translation now, the Jewish mothers didn't obey the villain. They hid their newborn boys. And each night when it grew completely dark, the mothers would zigzag their way to the apple field, where they lay down their tiny newborn boys by the roots of the trees and prayed, apple tree, apple tree, the grief. It drives me wild as you guard your apples please protect my child and when the dew fell and polished the grass with its pearly drops the mothers cried pearly little blades of grass the grief it drives me wild from burning heat and frigid cold please protect my child when the morning star appeared and the birds began to sing the mothers lamented tuneful little songbirds the grief it drives me wild sing your happy little songs lull to sleep my child and so you know it's really bringing these these mothers and their care in in a very powerful way and then the angels and god god self have to act as surrogates for the maternal care that would be the sort of natural right of of these children and the, the natural benefit that they should receive. So I yeah, I think there's there's a lot of hope. I think there's a lot of dream of a of a brighter future. And this, you know, the classical the rabbinic Midrash is building to the point where at the parting of the of the sea, they can plausibly point out and say, Zeeli Van Vehu. You know, that's my God. And I recognize that God because I knew that God in my infancy. That's the one who took care of me. Right.
4: So it's such a power, there's such powerful images of, you know Tahas at or And I just feel like the you know, when I think in, in when I think about my own child, my three voice, and I think about trying sometimes to imagine what it would be like. If if I were to read flatly on the page in two dimensional reality, oh God, you know I say this God forbid, but like, yeah, I had a brother until I was seven, but then I didn't know what happened to him after that, you know. And to think about the 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 depth of connection between my boys, and where does that loss go? Where does that lost connection, right? That we know, is one of the most horrific experience. Like trying to imagine, you, you know. Miriam, you know, to imagine Miriam, Miriam sitting there wondering, what's going to happen with, with this little Moses baby? Is he going to be okay? Will I ever see him again? What will be with him? You know, just the pathos of that moment is so profound. And then to see that and then to ask ourselves questions, you know, without being, you know, I don't personally don't think this is personally a political statement at all, but just, just to think about the separation at the border without getting into, into the politics of immigrants but like as a as the people who are sitting down at our you know in our Pesach seder and to not say you know that experience of Khazala talking about might not be happening to Jewish people right now in America for the most part and around the world but there are human beings mothers like the mothers in that Yiddish poem who are who, who are crying this child will I hope this child will be okay will I ever and, and 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 that the God of Israel, the God of the universe will say, We are in we're, we're remembering them tonight, remembering those painful moments of slavery that are still active for, for other human beings around the world right now, where their mothers are hoping that their children will be safe through the night. And that you know, that they too will be able to say, the right? I'm gonna say this is what you know, my mother told me it would be okay. You know, I know in in our community, we had an immigration uh, panel and uh, uh, a man in Arizona who works, uh, uh, who who came over as an immigrant from Mexico, Eddie Eddie Chavez, and he spoke about how his mother was holding him, safeguarding him, like the Kikayon, right? Through the desert as they were making their way towards the United States and hovering over him. And she didn't cry once the entire pathway. There wasn't one tear until somebody treated her with dignity and she remembered what it was like to be treated with dignity. It didn't mean that the law wasn't right, whatever that means, all the, but it was dignity. And I think that it's a very powerful frame that, that uh, Darshanit just brought, this beautiful Yiddish poem to think into that as a meditation on what life would be like if that was taken from us, that simple gesture of connection with our own children and safety and the assumption of that. So I'm just lifting them up to today and tonight as we enter Pesach.
0: We're not only here tonight to talk about the slavery, we're also here to talk about the Exodus. So by way of transitioning in that direction, uh, maybe, or silver, do you think that Israelites dreamed of freedom?
3: I think that um, I think in reading the text, it's very hard to know, I think that part of the experience of being a slave has to do with as uh, was mentioned before it's about not seeing the possibility of ever living differently I, I think if we remember in the story when moshe goes to paro and says our god has called us to serve god let us go into the desert for three days and Paro says what is this you would etar, you would give them a sh- sh- shabbat you would stop working because paro doesn't want them to stop working because when you don't work actually as it says in the Torah, it came to pass in those days, the king of Egypt died and Israel groaned from the labor and the cries ascended to heaven. And the last thing power wants is for people to not work for a moment. And then when you don't work, you begin to reflect. It gives you the opportunity to reflect, who am I, what am I doing, et cetera. So I think that the challenge was to, was to give people an opportunity to begin to think about this is the situation, does it have to be this way? Uh, I think that was the challenge. The Shabbat then becomes, or the the stopping working, becomes sort of essential, I think, whether it's Shabbat or whether it's a pause in the labor, gives us an opportunity to to reflect upon, you know, who we are, what we're doing, how we're spending our time. Um, I just wanna say one thing before I make one other point, which is, it's certainly the case that there are people all over the world who are actually slaves and i would say 40 million i suspect is a, is it's much more than that because there may be 40 million official slaves but there are people that are trapped where they are working in incredibly difficult situations being exploited being persecuted being treated as not as human beings and the world is filled with that kind of suffering i mean the world is crying so it's on the other hand i think the uh our tradition says that if that's true, we should be aware of that and, and think about that. But um, we also have to see ourselves within the story. We have to we see ourselves as being there, it means each of us, wherever we, we may find ourselves, tries to find meaning in the story and tries to see how the story pushes us to be to be, to be better people. So yes, we are, you know many of us are living relative to the rest of the world, I would say rather comfortable lives, not that we don't have our problems, everybody has their issues and problems, and we should never try to judge the other person and their level of suffering. But I think that, so one point is about, you know, uh, one point is about thinking about other possibilities, but in terms of the exodus, I think what I would focus on is uh three words that god says to moshe in the story Shalach ami you know the, the purpose of the exodus actually when you read the book of exodus the primary purpose seems to be not to relieve the people from suffering that is a purpose but god's main purpose seems to be in the book of exodus which ends with the Mishkan, and ends with service is avodah service of god and i think what the exodus is about and maybe this is i think this is very deep within hasidic teachings that everybody has a purpose in this world. Everybody should be a, a kind of uh, obey Hashem. Everybody's, everybody's here for a purpose. And the trick is to try to figure out what is my purpose. So I think that freedom gives, gives us the opportunity to, to fulfill our particular missions. And nobody knows what the other guy's mission is. But if you're living on someone else's time, which is slavery, there is no time of your own. You, you can't make the choices that that we have to make. So I think that you know everybody in terms of the book of Exodus and the goal of the serve me to serve God, it's about everybody thinking, who am I? What are my gifts? What is my situation? How can I be a servant of God? Uh, how can I do the purpose for which I was put on earth? and try to figure out what that purpose is, and then pursue it, whether it's fighting injustice in the world, whether it's whether it's teaching. There, there, there are countless ways to serve, uh, and everybody has to figure out what they're suited for or what the specific needs of the generation or the community are. But what I take from the story is exactly that, that the primary goal seems to be, in God's words, shalach ami to serve God and for each of us to figure out what that particular service is, for each individual person, starting with ourselves, clearly.
0: So I guess part of the question is: Do you think that the Israelites understood that meaning? But you're trying to blow open the concept of freedom—that all freedom is—is is the ability to choose what service, what service that you, it is that you do. But when a person is enslaved, is that the freedom that they dream of?
3: No, it's the first step, I think. I don't think the people are capable. I think Moshe's mission is to, Moshe's a teacher. He said Moshe's a visionary. His mission is to present to the people a different way of seeing themselves and of seeing the world. Um, but it is necessary to get out of its right, those narrow spaces, because there are no choices. So part of the mission has to do with the first step, I would say, is getting out of a place which, which prevents you from being the person that you're supposed to be. That's only the first step. That's a necessary but not sufficient uh, situation. And then the next step is to appreciate that with freedom comes responsibility. And that if we are free, the gift of freedom means that we have the opportunity, I think the obligation to, to, to serve, to serve humanity, to serve God, et cetera. And we have to think about what we are best suited to do. But I think that at the end of the day, the book of Exodus seems to say, we have to be uh, obeyed Hashem. And, uh, you know, it's uh, it's again a question of what that means. And I think that everybody has, tries to figure that out. Sometimes we can get help. And what just one last short point about uh, the Gemara that was quoted before, you know, I think that part of the emphasis on the, the women in Mitzrayim being the, the actual heroines is that sometimes we're in a situation where God doesn't seem to, to be interested in getting involved. And then in those situations, I think what the Midrash is saying, okay, if God isn't getting involved, then, it's, then the human being has to play God. The human being has to say, God will get involved through me, through my behavior. And it's often the people who, who, who do that, are those you might not expect uh, to be the ones, we never know where, where salvation will come. And everybody's capable of, uh, of of helping the the, the uh, community, we shouldn't prejudge about which people are, are capable. Give people an opportunity, and they will often step up and and serve and enable us to to be better people. i um, will stop at this point, but but
0: I got the feeling that Dr. Jacobowitz wanted to respond.
1: <laughs> oh, I'm just a big nodder, but but I'll, I'll jump in. I'll jump in. First of all, Rabbi Silver, what you just said reminded me so much of Levinas. That I was just teaching to 11th grade students, the idea of human beings finding themselves in, in an empty world and, and responding by embracing godliness you know, and re- responsibility. I never really thought about the Egypt story that way of the, the, the Israelites perhaps, right? Perhaps feeling that, that emptiness and it beginning to invite them into the conversation, into the story. You know, but I was going to say when you ask the question, "Do they dream of freedom?" and I have no idea, right? I really have no idea. But, but what I do know is that the story—it's so elusive to figure out whether the people were actually involved in their own redemptive process or not. You know, and and there's so many different opinions in the text and outside the text. I was raised on the idea of that that terrible image of them having sunk to the 49th level, it just felt like this. they were in this, you know, quagmire, this pit, and if they, the last minute, they were pulled out, right, and thank God, because it was almost, there was no time left, and that's like a, an extension of where Rabbi Ingber began, of the She Oref. them just even being resistant to their own potential for for being redeemed that that's one side of things and and that's reinforced by all the expressions of god bringing them out and and paro kicking them out they're just like this group of people that's being pushed around and they have no agency and then here and there there are these there are these expressions that awaken you to the reality that they they weren't so passive after all Did they dream of it? I don't know. But they were certainly involved in their redemptive process. Now, I know you're going to ask us later, what was it like when they left? You know, so just to to jump to that, because to me, that's part of the redemption. Where does the redemption begin? And where does it end? That's also our question for tonight. I've been thinking a lot about, and this is Rabbi Ingeber going back to what you were saying, you know, that night, that night as a mother, I think about that a lot, you know, and then but there was a lot of time in between the crying out in the dead of the night, the fear and the, the terror, and then actually being en route with your family. And I think about mothers and fathers packing whatever they had and organizing the kids and what were they saying to them and how were they explaining it to themselves. And there was so much that they had to do in those hours. So agency. In the sense that maybe we would want for them, you know, they demanded their freedom, they davened for it extensively. They they changed their, ba- no, but agency in the sense of like being very busy with their with their selves and their families. And and I'll just say one last image, which is maybe distracting, but but Rabbi Ingber, we spent you know a summer together a long time ago in Israel, and it was the middle of the war, and I remember actually speaking to you know, after one of the sirens and I'll never forget one of the nights when I had to get my kids out of bed and go down to the bomb shelter and, and the kind of heart stopping moments, what those were like, you know, when there, there was getting to safety, not to freedom, right, not to redemption, but to safety out of a narrow place. And, and, and I, I've been thinking about that a lot, what that night was like, did they know how it would end? Did they know that the the pitch blackness and the busyness in those fumbling hours was gonna take them into broad daylight, into the into the sea? Was it a Munah that was guiding them, or was there also in there a lot of you know anxiety channeled into busyness? Thank
4: you very much, I very much wanna I wanna piggyback on that. I wanna say that I think one of the things about dreams, you know, everything begins with Yosef, the dreamer, right? or in Egypt because, in some way, because of dreams and the dreams of Pharaoh. And, and dreaming is a big deal, you know, Jacob Avino's dream. And I think that's, that's some one of the things about slavery. At least I can't speak personally, but I, you know, immense suffering. I can say immense, overwhelming, bone-crushing, spirit, spirit-killing suffering. Is that it can kill? It can kill dreams. It can kill hope. And I mean dreams here by the ability to project oneself into a, into an imagined future. Like then, then Oz, you know, Oz Yashir. Maybe that was the first moment of Oz of, of a future was when they arrived finally at the Sea of Reeds. But one thing I, I hold in my back pocket about this potential for imagining an, an alternate future, you know, or a different present because of an alternate future is that. Um, too much suffering. The original Rebbe said that the Gemara says that there's a covenant between salt and suffering. There's a covenant made by suffering and also a Brit, a covenant made by Melach by salt. And the Gemara says that just as salt, some, you know, a little bit of salt can bring out the sweetness of, of the meat. A little bit of suffering can bring out things in us that we didn't know were there. But the original Rebbe said, yeah, but just like too much salt can ruin meat, too much suffering can ruin us. And, we all know it's not always a happy story. Too much suffering can ruin can ruin people and they can, it, can, it can deplete them. And, and that was, of course, the great insight of Victor Frankl, that, that those who found, not by definition, it's not if you can, then you will, but those who could, whatever that means, find a why they were able to. And so we have to imagine that, that maybe there wasn't much there when Moshe Rabbeinu showed up. And that part of, of the, the greatness of Moshe being the only Israelite, essentially slave who was brought up in royalty and who actually was the only one to ever really leave Egypt first. He was the one, he did UT at the time and then he went back in. He came back and said, there's a world outside of Egypt, my friends. And maybe at that moment they started to remember that when they went to bed at night, they cried and said, you know, we wish that it would be different. Maybe some of them in their moments of despair, thought that they could see in the windows in somewhere down on on madison avenue of alexandria in cairo that there was something called musical instrumentation maybe i was meant to be a singer maybe some levi said you know we're supposed to sing there's a whole thing about us singing and that's what we're going to do and maybe we're the weavers and we're the midwives and we're the and maybe they held those things maybe but i'll say this the, the, the rough said something that i that I take with me every day Great Rolf Soloveitchik said that the reason why we put Geula, the blessing of thanking God for redemption every day, we place that blessing directly, directly connected without any separation whatsoever with the beginning of our Amida, the prayer where we ask for everything we might need. He said that of the, one of the things that's lost most deeply amongst those who live under tremendous suffering and slavery is that they lose the ability to even let themselves want what they want. And that Smichas Geula, the Tvila bringing redemption, connected to requesting and hoping, is to rebirth in us an ability to say, "I need, I need something. I want something. I want." And that that infinite resignation and despair might be rekindled by a hope. So I think you know, I think that that they must have dreamt of something, and if they didn't, they thankfully had leaders who awakened in them again the the audacity and the and the courage it takes. Hope.
2: So, in light of what I just heard from Dr. Jacobowitz and Rabbi Ingber, I want to, in my own mind, revisit a question that has occurred to me many times before about why these, why they got across and Miriam and the other women happened to have Tupim and Mecholot on their persons. Like, why did you have that with you? Was it because they were dreaming? Of this thing to come, or was it because that was part of their immediate need while enslaved that that was the day to day survival, and that that was part of the agency that they had in their own redemption, which was the the preservation of joy and some capacity for for singing and for dancing
0: yeah um that, uh i wanna i wanna drill into that a little bit because I'm curious um. What did they believe in? Meaning when, when Moses at, encounters the burning bush, God sort of introduces God's self to Moses as if perhaps they had never met before. Uh, so what, what was going on before that?
2: Well, they, they had these two mitzvot in Egypt, right? That both involved blood. We have a tradition that they, that they kept up with the mitzvah of Brit Milah through the generations and, of course, the blood of the Pesach of the Paschal Lamb and the smearing of the, the doorposts, Um that doesn't really tell us what they believe in. Um, the other thing that I find really striking in Midrash about the kind of spiritual life of the people was this idea that In Egypt, there was a kind of somnolence, like a latent period when they were waiting to be awakened by something. And so this image of God coming to them as the the awakener, um, there's a a really beautiful drasha of a verse in Shir Hashirim, Ani'eshe bi air right so i'm asleep but my heart is awake that there's some part of me that's capable of this aspiration this connection um fake. so the voice of my beloved is is knocking is making some noise it's getting my attention um yonati tamati and there's just this this cascade of epithets of these Kinuyim that seem to express um, so much affection, and what what the rabbis say about this is that these this cascade of epithets corresponds to to the accumulation of mitzvot. That at first there are just these two that involve the blood, but then they get more mitzvot at Mara, and they get more mitzvot at Sinai, and by the time they Come into possession of the whole oral law, then, then the end of the Pasuk is that, you know, my, I'm just, it's this imagery of like saturation um, that I'm just full of these mitzvot. So I, I don't know exactly what they believed in, but I really love this idea of something dormant that then gets awakened and stimulated more and more with every phase of the exodus
0: so now um dr Jacobowitz mentioned that i'm very curious in what the experience of the exodus looked like i'm curious kind of when they knew it was going to happen when did it when did it start to feel real to them Uh, was it when moses came back was it at the first little plagues, was it at the last little plagues? Was it not until that khatzi halayla? Was it not until that that middle of the night? And then I'm also curious what it was like for them to leave. That when you when you read Parsha Bo, um, it, there's a lot of preparation. Here's what's going to happen. Here's what you're going to do. Here's exactly what it's going to be like. And then the verses that actually describe it. Have so little detail, <laughs> um, and it, it leaves open all those questions that that Doctor like, uh mentioned before. Okay, how was it like for What was it like for children? What was it like for grandparents? What did did they leave people behind who they loved? Like what what was there was there a moment of indecision? Should I actually leave or not? None of that is here actually in the in the text itself. Um, so I'm so I'm curious, kind of how you how you imagine those things. So when did it become real for and then what was it, what was it actually like to leave? Um, maybe maybe we'll start
2: with
4: you. Well, I, I want to first tell you what we believed in when we were there. It's so funny because one of these teachers, these amazing teachers, mentioned earlier how much birth was happening. Birth, 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 you know, Vayashwatsu, Vayatsbum. I'll tell you what we believed in. We believed in birth and rebirth. That's what we believed in. And even in our most, the darkest moments, the moments of absolute radical despair, we believed that kichayot haina, are you know, even like, you know, maybe those are the Egyptian midwives, who knows, but there's something about life that we, that we know, we know life. And so when, when Moses came and said that God also believed in us, when we didn't believe in ourselves, that we could take the thing that we feared the most, the God of Egypt, the thing that had sustained our ancestors, because we knew a thing or two about, about lambs and sheep, right? That was what we used to do. And we knew they weren't gods and we knew that this false power had power over us and when Moses said that God said that we were supposed to take it in for four days. And let it make its noise and deal with the fear that we're going to be discovered, we believed that we that we could be reborn and then when he told us to take the blood and to put it all around the door and then told us to wait 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 and then pass through, not pass over. God will pass over, but we had to pass through and be reborn through that birthing canal that became our home. In order to find a new reality, we had to be born ourselves with the dripping blood of the thing we feared, which held no power over us any longer. We knew and believed ultimately in ourselves and that God believed in us. So then when we finally got to the, you know, we got to the Yam yeah, Suf, we got to the Sea of Reeds, nobody had ever, right? I mean, we dreamed about the day, maybe, we, you know, talk about dreams, but we hoped that we would be there. And we were scared. And so we started screaming and then Moshe screamed and then Moshe said, the God said, stop screaming, tell the children of Israel, tell the, and as if God was saying to us, you already have passed through one portal, you know the terror of walking through those doors with all the blood, now walk through the waters, the same waters that your redeemer was pulled from, the same waters that killed so many of your children, walk through those waters, you will be okay. And so we walked and it was a miracle.
0: It was a miracle. And so we started to
4: scream and sing. And it was so confusing, but there it was. It was happening, it was happening. And I started thinking, I wish that my great-grandfather could see this. I wonder if Jacob knew that it would be like this, and that Rachel knew it would be like this, and Leah knew it would be like this. I heard the stories, but if they could have been with us as we walked through to the other side. And then Miriam took us, took the women, and it was dancing, and it was unbelievable. And unbelievable
1: make me think about about my bubby and baby and the stories he told me about living through the Shoah. and i always and david you just made me you reminded me of the last seder that i had with them when we got to the hallel we started singing and dancing in my kitchen and i felt in that moment all of the anxieties that they had all those years, could they ever have grandchildren that they could tell their story to or even live their story through? And would that come? And there it was, and there we were singing and dancing. And, and you, thank you, you just helped me relive that. And if I could say one more thing, Leah, about what was your question? When did they know? How did they know? I was shaped by the prince of Egypt as much as I was by the psukim, and there was one detail in the prince of Egypt that I can't unthink, and that was when Yocheved, early in the story, was nursing Moshe, and she was singing Nigunim to her, to him, rather, and I remember thinking, God, that's so brilliant, because of course she was teaching him even then. Of course she was giving him some kind of wordless Masora that would help him know in kind of a muddled way later that he belonged to this people. How else would he know? It was through the nursing, it was through loving, it was through the song. And I think about the Jewish people in all this time, right? Because the story with the named characters picks up at the end. It's like hundreds of years in that there was like a a low level niggin the whole time of like connecting them back to something. It stopped having real words, it stopped having real shape, it stopped having real token, but it it was passed on. It was passed on. Almost like, you know, a kind of retrojected Murano situation. Like they knew and they didn't know. They had a feeling, they had a connection, but they couldn't articulate it. They could just maybe sing it. And then when you get closer towards those where you just described Parsha Bo and It's happening, and it's coming, and it's in a few days, Then it's and then it's being described, but then it's also being foretold all at the same time. As a reader, there's like a zooming out and zooming in that's happening, which makes me think like it was too much for them to take in all at once, so they keep being guided. Oh, you know what, in the future, you'll be in this other land, and you'll do these things, and your kids will ask you about, there's a future? I'll be in this other land? kids will ask me and zoom back in, take this animal now, do the thing now. And that makes me think that there were like multiple strategies to get them ready to understand what this is, what it would be. And nobody got it all at once and nobody took it in all at once a little bit and then back. And then maybe just only right when it was happening, was it happening? And even then, and even then, like, what is redemption? How do you know it when you see it? How do you feel it? How do you understand it? Maybe it's only in the after. Maybe it's only in the, in, in the telling of it.
0: So, Silver, I would love to hear your thoughts on, on, um, on Parshad Bo, but really what's behind Parshad Bo?
3: Well, I think that um, I think I agree with the idea that there's that moment of leaving, a moment of faith, a moment where you would say, I'm going to take the risk and go into parts unknown. Uh, I think that what the Torah is after, though, is the complexity because we have to remember the people that leave Mitzrayim want to go back there. And they make that point several times. And they say, let's go back, let's go back to Egypt. We had watermelons, we had cucumbers, we had fish. They absolutely refuse to continue the journey. And after about a year, they're basically uh, consigned to remaining in the desert until the next generation can uh, can uh, emerge. And what I find actually remarkable, which is not to say that at that moment of leaving, well, even the moment of leaving, the Torah says, we ate matzah, we were thrown out of Egypt, we couldn't tarry. And the clear implication is, were we able to tarry, we might still be there. We couldn't tarry because we were thrown out, the Egyptians kicked us out. That's clear. So there was all, there were doubts, which is completely understandable because somebody mentioned the burning bush before. The burning bush is is the first revelation that we have from the time that Yaakov goes down to Egypt in chapter 46. All those years, God never speaks. So to be in Mitzrayim is to be in a place where God is silent. And then God begins to speak to Moshe in a, in a small way, in a, a snap or whatever. And Moshe has to somehow convey that to the people. And the miracle is that the people, yes, we were forced out on one hand. On the other hand, we did leave. Uh, we, left, we left in haste. I and mean, sometimes you make that choice, you're just going to leave. Whatever, the, whatever it is, you're leaving things behind, but you, you get out. And what I find actually amazing about the Haggadah, and about the tradition, is that the critical, what we celebrate in that tradition, more than any other event, is leaving Mitzrayim. There's very little celebration in that tradition about entering the land, very little. It's all about leaving Mitzrayim, even though everybody knows that everybody who left Egypt wanted to go back and die in the desert. But I think the point of it, at least what speaks to me, is they took the first step. And without that first step, we don't go anyplace. And the idea of seeing ourselves in Egypt, to me at least, means I see my whatever I've accomplished in my life. If I have accomplished something, it's always built on what other people who came before me have done. Nobody is an island. Nobody is living alone. And the idea of acknowledging the past and appreciating the people who have made sacrifices for us, whether it's within our family or the community or whatever, or our great teachers. Uh, that we're part of a, a an ongoing tradition and we are appreciative. To me, the Seder is all about gratitude. We're grateful to God who took us out of Egypt. We're grateful to the people who came before us, who, who taught us, who gave us insight into life. And nobody has all the answers. Nobody, There's no one person or one group that has all the answers. That's what I take from it. And the people that we celebrate, they themselves had had, had doubts, many doubts, to the extent they say, just a year later, let's go back to Egypt. So nonetheless, they are, they are heroes because they took that step and it's our maybe responsibility to acknowledge that, maybe to sing with them at the sea. But the night of Pesach is not about the sea because the sea is the seventh day. And we're focused on that moment of leaving with all the doubts and with all the questions. And I think we both acknowledge it on the one hand and see ourselves as entrusted with the responsibility to, to keep moving forward and to build for the next generation as well that's, that's my take on it too.
0: so where would you say if you had to if you had to if you were writing the Haggadah and you wanted to end the story somewhere where would you where would you end it just to just uh we'll move into our we'll ask this question to all of our panelists and, and that's that what would i would be. i
3: would i would say that what i find remarkable about the Haggadah is that the Haggadah is focused on the moment of leaving to the extent that the core text of the Savior, I mean, the core text, never talk about the land. They only talk about the moment of leaving. Um, even though the text that we are citing from the Torah talks about entering the land, but the covenant with Abraham, you will leave, the generation will leave with a lot of possessions. The fourth generation shall return to the land. We don't mention the fourth generation. We say, we stop there. I think the idea is to see ourselves as leaving Egypt, and I would just say one point about that, which is the idea of seeing myself in Egypt, however that speaks to all of us, I think the God wants us to imagine that we don't know what the future holds. You know, When you go see a movie for the second time, you know the ending. But just imagine that you're in Mitzrayim and you're leaving Egypt, and you're both leaving willingly and willfully, but also you're forced out, don't have the provisions, you're going to a desert, and you don't actually know, you have no idea how you're gonna survive in the desert. You have no clue. And to put yourself in that space and to say, like, the people that left, like, wow, like that's amazing that they would actually take that risk. They were risk takers. We were also forced out. On the other hand, we we also went out. So I think the Haggadah wants us to focus on that moment and not to think so much about what happened afterwards. I mean, we can think about that in Diana or something. But fundamentally, it's all about the exodus. That's my take on the Haggadah. It's about that moment with all its uncertainties and all its questions and all its difficulties and all the complaining. At the end of the day, those people left. They they, they made that leap of faith. And I think we have to acknowledge it. At the same token, they had their doubts, their uncertainties, and so do we. that doesn't mean we don't have a responsibility to keep moving forward.
0: Dr. Jacobowitz, where does the story end?
1: Yeah, I think we've said it so many times tonight, but I'll say it again. It it, it can't end, right? It doesn't end. The Haggadah has so many possible endings and the possible endings overlapped with each other emphasizes the point that it doesn't end. And we don't have to or nor we can, can we choose an ending? I just want to say one thing about what Rabbi Silber just mentioned. You know, it's such a powerful idea to come to that table each year and say, I, I don't know how it's going to turn out. And there's there's a lot of fiction that we bring with us when we show up to the Seder, but I think our experiences collectively from last year of showing up to our first COVID Seder and really not knowing how it would end and not knowing even how we would do the Sadharm without all of the voices and the bodies and the ideas that are usually accompanying us, I think that we've gotten a taste of what that can feel like and to let this story flow through us and be open to multiple possibilities and allow it to help us shape ourselves, I think, as we've said, primarily towards hope, towards action and towards empathy.
0: Rabbi Ingber, how does it end?
4: So yeah, everything that's been said and uh, I fully love that it doesn't end and i'm a big fan of it not ending and i just want to i wonder if part of it not ending though is this question i always ask myself whenever we do the prayer for gula the one that i just referenced earlier we always also include you know jacob and and what dr jacob was brought from her own grandparents and imagining a freedom that they couldn't imagine but that they could live to see and that jacob never lived to see his children both enslaved and didn't live to see them free either. And I wonder if one of the questions in the ongoing saga is, what freedoms are we acknowledging that we might not see, but that we, we, are, we, we hope and pray that one day we'll be a part of the prayer acknowledging its arrival? I think that that for me is, is a question I'm holding also as we go in to this Pesach and the, the, the story that goes on and on and on
0: and on. Where, you know? Where does it end?
2: So because you're asking now about endings, I'm going back to beginnings in order to end, um, to the idea of Pitom v'Ramses as miskenot, as these storage cities. And the rabbis do a lot of readings of miskenot, um, mesaken, it's endangering, it's misken, it's impoverishing. Um, Ramses is mitrosetz, the buildings collapse. Um, Pitom is pitahom, the ground swallows up the buildings. So what happened in Egypt was being drafted into building unsafe, insecure edifices. And another way of telling this story is that it's the journey of the people from building those unsafe edifices for others to finding their own secure edifice. And the kind of surprise in all of that is that the most secure edifice turns out to be the temporary one. It's the the Mishkan, it's the edifice that has to be constantly perpetually reconstructed. And so I think it ends with the Mishkan of the Haggadah, of the telling and of that being the place where the the sense of, of contingency and amazement that it did go this way, that it is going this way, that there is redemption can sort of Meet and and kiss, if you will, that sense of destiny. Of this was God's plan for us all along.
0: God's plan for us all along. Um, I mean,
4: it's amazingly so beautiful. Wow. It's amazing
0: to do this it's well, thank you to all of our panelists. Thank you to everyone who came to join us to hear hear this particular telling of the seder. And I hope that. On your Seder night, it inspires you to tell your own um, with all of the, the library that you bring to the Seder night in your head and with your experiences um, and, and making meaning as, as Dr. Jacobowitz challenged us all to do, making meaning out of, out of our unique experiences of the past year through, through the Seder night with the memory and understanding that the story doesn't end and we pass it forward and that's how we make sure it doesn't end. Uh so Thank you. Thank you for coming out thank tonight. You.
4: Thank you all. Thank you
1: so much. <laughs> thank you. Thank
4: you too. Thank you so much, Labanit. Thank you so much.